Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ruth Hannon, and I'm one of the leads for the People and Place programme at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's event. Um, If those of you watching along with us would like to join the conversation on Twitter, you're very welcome to do so. Please use the hashtag RSAYouth. Uh, or or in our YouTube chat, which is just to the side of of the visual. Now, I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk today to Jeremiah Emmanuel about his new book, Dreaming in a Nightmare, which is very timely as it is actually out today as well. Jeremiah is a youth activist and social entrepreneur who aged just 11 was elected into the UK Youth Parliament and later became Youth Mayor of Lambeth. He founded youth consultancy enterprise EMNL, and among many other brilliant accomplishments, wrote the book that we're going to be discussing today, which I'm really looking forward to discussing with him. In it, he weaves together reflections from his own life experiences and upbringing with research and stories from other people he knows and has met that really highlight a lot of the major issues facing many young people today who experience multiple challenges, including school exclusions, and that all contribute to them having to live in a state of poverty. Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Um, And, you know, I'm already blown away by what you've achieved um, by your young age. Um, I'm just trying to think what I managed to achieve. And I probably just thought I'd done really well if I got to a nine o'clock lecture at university. So, you know, um, expect, expect me to be feeling very humbled throughout this whole conversation. Um, Your book, Dreaming in a Nightmare, um, one of the things that really struck me about it, um, despite it being about the challenges that people face in life, especially young people, um, was that it was really imbued with a spirit of of hope um, and that recognises for many young people um, that all all these things that are happening around them has that impact on their life and 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 the ta- you know your explanation of the title of the book um really sort of captured that and i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about about your experiences um that led you to write into writing the book um yes um dreaming in a nightmare to me sort of encapsulated my life growing up um and it, it wasn't saying that I was dreaming in a nightmare down to like geographical location. You know, I did grow up in Brixton, South London, various different issues sort of affected me and my friends growing up. But for me, it was the realization that my reality, my day to day, what is so normal to me could be seen as a complete nightmare to someone else who would not have had the same upbringing, who would not have experienced the same things that I experienced. Um, And that's why, to me, I put together the title Dreaming in a Nightmare, in this so-called nightmare. Um, For me, it's sort of memoir meets manifesto because I definitely use many examples within my life that I've experienced. But to me, it was really important to highlight all of these different issues that affect thousands of young people up and down the UK and really drilling into the solutions, you know, what can we do about 
um, homelessness? What can we do about reforms in the education system? What can we do about justice and the relationship between young people and the police? Um, even down to charity and the third sector and, and what can be done differently. Um, and for me, it was really important to just share my story in this way. Um, and a way that many people sort of describe my story is almost as if I lived between two worlds. Um, I was fortunate enough to have many opportunities to get involved in like the UK Youth Parliament, um, to do many different forms of activism that involved me traveling around the world, um, meeting really successful people like Bill Gates to Richard Branson. However, after being in all of these environments, I will go back home to this normality that again can be seen as a complete nightmare to someone else. That's really interesting. And I think that that idea of, of people looking in and, and um, sort of assuming that your life and, and you know your friends and your peers' lives are a nightmare. But as you show in your book, lots of good things are happening all the time at the city. And, 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 and I suppose it, there's the things that it feels like you really tease out in, in the book is this idea of um, judge the impact of judgment on people and um, the, how that can then, you know, or, or assumptions that are made, um, you know, the, the, your sections where you're talking about your school, your experiences in school and, um, the experience of Damani's um, when he has that journey to, to the policy uh, pupil referral unit was that all of that felt like it was, as you say, people looking in and making all these assumptions. And I just wondered what that, what that was like for you with, you know, your, like you say, you know what it's like to live where you grew up and where you live, um, but having to sort of counteract all that judgment around you. Um, I would say there was many examples that I gave in the book, especially within education and the sort of difference between um, different forms of education, um, sort of like private education down to state school education. Um, and for me, the realisation um, that there was a massive difference between the way we were educated was sort of connecting with young people who, to be honest, looked like myself also, came from similar backgrounds, but they attended Eton and Harrow. And their experience of going to school was totally different to my experience. You know, they were prepped to become the CEOs of FTSE 100 companies, the future prime minister, an army general. Um, whilst I was in school, and I actually told a careers advisor that one day I want to become an author. I was told, Jeremiah, don't be too overambitious. And why is there that difference? Why is it that I'm only expected to reach a certain point in life? And my peers, um, who again, some of the young people that I know that have attended these schools look like me, um, but they're told that you can achieve anything you want to achieve within life. Um, another example is sort of, um, dismissals within the school system um, and pupil referral units. And my literal experience of knowing young people who were expelled from school, who had now had to um, go into alternative education was that the majority of them literally either ended up in prison or were affected by youth violence. And unfortunately, a few of them that I know who 
went down that route have unfortunately passed away. And it was that stark realization when I was writing the book that someone can take one route in life and end up in a completely different space, um, only due to one decision that a school can make. Um, and I gave the example of the Dunraven School in Streatham, who created a new policy and said, you know what, we are not going to expel any of our students permanently. If there's any behavioral issues, we are going to address that within the school um, and we're not going to give up on them. Um, and we saw a massive impact of, of, of them doing that within the Streatham area. Um, in terms of their school grades and whatever, they were incredible. And when you compare schools like that to a, a lot of schools who just expel young people due to them not focusing and basing it on school league tables, um, like it's it's terrible to see. Um, so for me, this this again was one of the main objectives of the book. It's how can we talk about the class divide in this country? How can we talk about the word inequality and, and the fact that um, many young people are experiencing life completely differently to others um, due to their social economic background. Um, and I gave the example um, of the first time I went on the bus route, the 345. It starts in Peckham, South London and ends in South Kensington. And the first time I stepped on this bus in Brixton, I would have been very, very young. Um, I think maybe seven years old. And I started in Brixton. I remember the bus route going over to Clapham, from Clapham through Clapham now to Battersea, from Battersea over the bridge into Chelsea. And I remember just going on that journey and just seeing how it was totally transformed. Um, gentrification was definitely a thing, but back then it hadn't fully kicked in. So you can literally walk a hundred meters between two areas and see a complete difference. And I remember being this four-year-old crossing the bridge, going into Chelsea, seeing cars that I'd only seen in Fast and Furious, um, houses that um, we began to call Doctor Who houses that were sort of terraced, but you could tell inside they were massive with double ceilings. Um, the pavement was the exact same colour as the day it was probably late. Um, whilst in comparison to Brixton, litter everywhere, police sirens going up and down, graffiti, um, pe many people who were homeless, who had nowhere to go. Um, so that was my first realization of a class divide within the country. Um, and again, the main reason again was to highlight this, um, not, not to say we're def divided, but to highlight to many people who have had a totally different upbringing, that these are some of the issues that are happening on your doorstep. Um, many of the things I discuss, you know, you're not going to see it on the six o'clock news. You're not going to read it in the evening standard. So for me, this was an opportunity to connect to an alternative audience also to really highlight some of these issues. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really wonderful. I think that's one of the things that you articulate so well in the book about the, the things that are happening right on people's doorsteps and the, the impact that has on their lives and um you know that 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 journey and describing your experience of seeing how different a different part of london is that you know that are literally getting on one bus can show that difference um i think that's really that captures it really wonderfully because i think one of the things that maybe for people who don't live in london um think is that everybody in london is really rich and um and and obviously there's there's huge 
you know, huge divides in London and that experience for, especially for children and what that must be like seeing that so, so starkly. Um, you, you mentioned there about um, school exclusions and the school that took a completely different approach. Um, and, you know, we, the RSA has done some work about um, the, the, the process of that's really undertaken at the moment um, in our work called Pin, Pinball Kids. And it's, it really makes me think about my own um, experiences in school where we did have those kids in class who were, you know, chatterboxes and, um, you know, the kids that everybody, they entertained you, they were fun, they made part of the school. But now I think about those because they were mostly boys and I think about what would happen to them now and how different their, their their lives would be. And that feels like that's a really um, key difference now for young people, that kind of small little actions. I think, you know, Demani's experience really shows it, that small little things that can, for a child, must seem like not very much, being a bit chatty in class, and where, where that potentially could lead, as you say, some of those people end up in prison or um, in the criminal um, system. Um, Damani obviously um, managed to get back into mainstream schooling. But I wonder if you could tell me what you think an, an alternative to that approach to um, dealing with children who, who've got, you know, who are bringing probably challenges with them through the school gates. Um, I think it's important never to give up on a child. Um, and I saw it far too much. Um, growing up, there was just so many young people. You would tell, oh, this person's been excluded from school. Um, is it temporary? Is it permanent? Um, and growing up as a young person, we actually began to feel it was solely based on league tables. Because if you have a young person who isn't necessarily focusing their best within school, then the school's best interests, which seemed really, really terrible at the time, was to get rid of that young person. And not saying, you know, someone talks within class and then now they're getting permanently excluded. Sometimes it is really sort of um, bad stuff that I, I would say has been done. Um, I've come across in the past young people who have carried knives into school and been excluded for that reason. Um, so not saying that every single school just excludes for the sake of it, but there's definitely a point where you can really intervene and make sure you have that early intervention um, and reverse the direction that that young person is going within. And to be honest, I feel unless the young person has committed a crime and it's being referred to the authorities, I see no reason why they should be expelled from school without having that intervention from teachers. The example I gave of Dunraven was just exceptional. Um, in, in my eyes, they really never gave up on any of their young people. I feel the, the reason many young people get distracted within school can be for a multitude of other reasons. You know, back home, there could be things happening with family. Um, there might not be enough positive role models. Um, I knew young people who, um, normally got distracted within school, but they were young carers at home. Um, they were directly in poverty and sometimes getting distracted was their, their mind sort of taking their thoughts off of everything that was happening at home. Um, and again, 
the underlying issues need to be tackled at the root also. Um, and this is why when we talk about education in the book, we highlight some of these other issues. Um, you know, as an example, a, a young person whose parents are migrants maybe, um, they've first generation family in the UK, um, might not fully understand the education system, English might not be the first language. There's all of these things that we need to really highlight. And I, my personal experience, I felt that it was often overlooked within the school system. It was sort of low-level disruption or mid-level disruption within class. Um, you need to leave now. You need to go to a pupil referral unit. And honestly, again, I was not over-exaggerating when I said the majority of young people that I knew that ended up in a um, PRU um, either ended up in a criminal justice system or pass away. And this is the stark reality within London. Um, so yeah, I feel schools need to um, take a, a, a better stand. Um, they need to focus more on, you know, reforming young people. Early intervention is super, super important um, because all it takes is one bad decision for a young person's future to totally spiral out of control. I think that's one of the things that really, um, really resonated in the book was how you pulled together the the complexity in people's lives, especially young people's lives. And my my background is working with carers and young carers, and and enabling people to understand their experiences can really change how schools work with them and support them. And, and I'm wondering about those kind of sort, sort of moving slightly beyond school, kind of what can happen in those wider systems um, that you think can help young people um, so that it's not just on the school to, you know, because obviously we're not in school um, all the time, but, you know, what else needs to happen in those young people's lives to enable them to, to live, the, live the best lives they can? Um, I think schools play a vital part. Again, you're only in school until a certain age, secondary 16 or beyond that 18 before university. I feel for many young people, the main sort of factor here is opportunity. Um, just opportunities for young people. We've, we've seen how um, this pandemic has sort of impacted the lives of young people. You know, I, I decided not to end up going to university Many of my friends who did have just graduated and now there's a lack of graduate jobs and opportunities. And, you know, we've really got to look into opportunities for young people at all ages. Um, and not saying there's no opportunities out there. Me as a young person, I had the opportunity to join the UK Youth Parliament um, to get involved in youth politics and activism. But at the same time, um, either the opportunities out there are not promoted enough um, or there's just not many for all young people. Um, so I think that's definitely a main point. A second thing is role models and mentorship. Um, and this is something that I've heavily campaigned on and implemented through my consultancy agency. Um, and it's really the opportunity for young people to um, connect with someone who may be seen as successful, someone who they can potentially relate to who has gone through similar things as a young person um, and the person can now direct them and give them hope in a way 
um, similar to myself, I came across several different role models. I would say my first ever role model was my mother. Again, not everyone will have that type of support within the household, unfortunately. Um, but later on, I, I found role models in, in my neighbours, um, in specific teachers, outs outside of the school setting, local community leaders became my role models. Um, so I think for young people, having someone who can be a role model is one thing. Mentoring is another important thing. Um, and I've been pushing for many corporate companies to sort of implement this within their corporate social responsibility by connecting them to young people. But what we've been doing that is really interesting is something called reverse mentoring, um, in which we get young people from various different backgrounds, um, underrepresented voices, to come into the companies and um, advise them on their life experiences. I've gone through this as a young person. And that's because mentoring is normally seen as an older person to a younger person. But in the past decade, with the um, amount of technological advances, you know, a young person has a totally different experience to someone who may be a little bit older. Um, so those, those are the two things. I think definitely opportunity, I think role models, and I think mentoring. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that as well, that just that final point about the reverse mentoring, you know, because as much as we all like to think we know what's happening in the world, the experiences of young people now, I think not even just compared to older generations, but probably people who were young two or three years ago, because they're, they're young people living through a pandemic. Um, and, and I just wondered what, what has been your experience and, and that you've seen with your peers and your friends about the impact that, that, that the past year has had on them and what, what that might, you know, what has that kind of emphasized as a need for, for young people? Um, for me, I touched on a very personal experience in the epilogue of the book, sort of touching on my um, own experience of the past 12 months. And I think for us all, it's been difficult um, my personal experience, I've had to sort of shield from family as um, like my mother, especially is vulnerable. Um, so sort of experiencing that has been sort of crazy, just disconnected, so close, but so far from family. I think for many of the young people that I know, um, it's been very, very difficult. First, you've got the lack of opportunities. Um, and there was already a lack of opportunities before the pandemic. So with a pandemic now hitting all of us, um, that sort of doubles or triples. And then you've got the fact that many young people live in council estates and blocks and have a lack of like green space. And um, I've heard stories of young people who during the height of the lockdown wouldn't have had any access to inter um, the internet, uh, maybe a computer that they could do their schoolwork from or their university work. Um, so it's really impacted the community I grew up in in a multitude of different ways. Um, I think it's super important as we begin to open back up um, to really dig in and highlight many of the um, inequalities that would have hit some young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, I, I know it's affected us all, um, I feel there's still been a heavy emphasis on, you know, business and other sectors, but we've really got to think about our young people um, and the uh, effect that this pandemic has had on them. 
Yeah, I think that's really captured well because I think some of the work that that me and my colleagues have been doing have been looking at that um, sort of the inequalities that people experience and how that has just sped up over the past year. And you touched there on the impact of digital inequality. And, you know, if you, um, I was speaking to a, a family um, a couple of weeks ago and that was four children in the home and mum all having to work from home and study from home. And they had an iPhone between all of them to do that. And, you know, they wouldn't have anticipated that, but that was their past year and um, the challenges that that has presented for them. Um, I think I think you're right. It's it's so important to think, OK, who who had it hard before and who's had it even harder for the past year? I think that's a really good, uh, a good point. And um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, your experience of politics as a young man. Um, we are um, really interested in participatory and deliberative democracy at the RSA. Um, and I'm just I'm just really interested in what what that experience was like and what maybe different perspectives it gave you um, by being part of the political system. Yes, um, I've heavily campaigned for a curriculum for life. Um, and that's because I believe that we need to have a curriculum that prepares young people for life in the future. Um, I actually feel a massive part of that is political education. Um, and we really need to engage more young people within politics. And if that isn't sort of embedded within the school system, then our young people are not going to be interested. Um, I, I actually went to an event, my first in-person event the other day at Somerset House. Um, there was something put together called the Forest for Change. Um, it was incredible. And a guy called Richard, um, Richard Curtis was um, speaking and he sort of gave the example of politicians in this day and age, only sort of caring about issues that affected them when they were young people. And a lot of the issues that are affecting the young people today, they have no sort of interest in it whatsoever because they're sort of thinking about their past 25 years ago. And when Richard said that, it really resonated with me. My experiences with politics has been, it's had its ups and downs, definitely. I think for me, actually being listened to directly um, by decision makers was really eye-opening to me. Um, I had been invited to receptions at Downing Street, um, met the leaders of several different agencies. I've given evidence at parliamentary select committees. I've spoken in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords chambers um, for like special events. Um, so yeah, engaging in politics has been fantastic. I think the downside of it, and I do share this, this example within the book, um, I actually share the example of a campaign um, that the politicians got the young people involved in, um, and we sort of came together to smile in front of some cameras um, to talk about the change that we needed. And about three days after that press day, um, there was a politician in particular that was involved. And I was walking down Brixton High Road, was um, spotted him, was almost about to say hi. And he walked past me because he didn't even recognize me. And I feel there's a part of politics where um, politics is always going to be politics at the end of the day. 
um, and that has to be recognized. So I've definitely had some experiences that weren't necessarily pleasant um, or other examples, you know, um, I've been to several different meetings, several different conferences, several different think tanks. And sometimes my experience has been that we talk, talk, talk about the exact same issues and there's no action. And a lot of the time when I do public speaking, I end my talks by saying change is a word, but we need it to become an action. And that's because throughout my whole um, life, sort of within the political um, sphere, um, we would talk, 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 and then no actions would come from it. So this leads me to my vision of politics, and it was seeing change being done from a grassroots level. Um, so you will always have your local government all the way up to regional and national. But for me, it was really working with different organizations, um, different individuals, even down to personalities, to be honest, and activists um, who were really driving that change. Um, and being involved with organizations at a grassroots level really taught me the power of the people. And we have the power to change things around us, to change things in our communities. So we can't always just rely on the politicians. Um, like all of us as a um, society need to come together to make sure we can influence the change around us. That's wonderful. And that's, I, I love that idea of um, I'm a community, I'm involved in my community and I love um, just kind of getting on with things um, and let's say do it before rather than asking if we can do it. Um, I'm just wondering if you feel, because I think, you know, your young experience of being in the youth parliament, um, do you think that would give you a different perspective on that? And I'm just wondering if other people feel um, almost sort of a sense of, you know, that they can't make those changes that, you know, that we have to rely on politicians to make changes rather than, or we can, we can make them ourselves. Yeah, when I was in the youth parliament, um, so to actually break it down, it's a national organisation in which young people are elected into different positions to become youth representatives within their um, boroughs or areas. And um, we take over the House of Commons once a year. So within that role, um, it was really interesting because we got to shadow politicians, we got to learn about the political system, and we got to campaign for various different issues. Now, from a political side of things, it really taught me again that you do have these decision makers, um, but you really need to put pressure on them to influence change. The most re recent example I can give are the amazing organizations and campaigners like Marcus Rashford that got the government to U-turn on free school meals. So it's important to recognize that outside of the political system, we can actually push for change. Um, and I think to anyone who might say, well, I'm, I'm not a member of the UK Youth Parliament. I don't know any politicians. How am I supposed to do it? Your voice counts. Um, and one thing that I learned from a very young age, I think Holly Branson actually said this at an event that I attended, is that if we all do little things individually, that now becomes a massive change. Um, so the little changes we can make as individuals, if we all begin to do that, um, we can create a massive shift within the political system. 
That's really wonderful. I, I, I suppose it, that that goes back to my sort of first point about the hopefulness in the book. And I think that's um, really one of the things that's really interesting and that's different about your book is often books about people who've had maybe lots of challenges in, in their life when they're young can be quite um, individualistic. So they can be very much, I've made, I've made all these wonderful changes in my life, but I've had all these challenges. Um, if I can do it, you can do it. But one of the things that I really feel is interesting about your book is that you've got this real empathy of, um, you know, these are the moments that helped me through my life. Well, you know, like you say, your mum and um, you talk about your teacher in your primary school at one point and, um, your form teachers, are, uh, you know, and, and things like that. And, um, but you also recognize that all the people who lived in your area, you had some things in common, but they had other, they didn't maybe have those moments that you had. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if, you know, what, what inspired you to, to sort of write the book? Cause I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I might, I might be being, mischievous here shall we say that I can't imagine your book is to convince everybody who lives where you live they they probably know what you know it feels like you're trying to convince people who are maybe judging all the people who you went to school with and and making you know like you said that those nightmare um visions of their lives so I'm wondering what what if people are reading the book or, or listening to our conversation what do you feel is the most important things for them to take away from the book? Um, for me, I felt it was important to use um, my life story as almost the foundation to highlight the different issues. And for many young people in my community, um, they face similar problems that I face, I would say. So it was highlighting it for everyone that could relate to it. And I also interviewed a number of key people with, within my life and made sure that I involved their stories as well because we all have a different story to tell. Um, for me, the book, number one, was to inspire young people from my community um, and from communities up and down um, all over the UK um, who sort of came from a similar social economic background who may have been told that your career path in the future is a bit too overambitious or was not given the opportunity to do certain things. It was really to inspire them. Um, but I think the second part of this, and it was what you rightly mentioned, it was connecting to an audience that is often disconnected um, from this social economic group. Um, and again, I, I gave the example within my specific town for many young people to mix with someone from an upper class background, it would only be if they went to a Russell Group University or Oxbridge, it would be if later on in their life, they secured a corporate job in a city or a sort of corporate profession, or thirdly, um, going to court and meeting the judge that's sentencing you for the first time. And those are the only three times many, many, many young people from my community would meet someone else from an upper-class background. And again, using that example of the 345 bus route, we are communities that live exactly right next to each other, but we almost live on parallel lines. Um, and it wasn't until I started meeting different, young, um, different people 
who I would say lived very differently to myself, um, who had no clue about any of the things that were happening with, within my community. I think an example of this that really hit home was the Grenfell disaster, because you had two communities who were completely different, um, who now were exposed to this crazy tragedy that, that sort of affected everyone together in terms of their emotions, in terms of their feelings. Um, so that for me was another reason why I wanted to write the book. So a farmer from Middle England who has no idea about Brits and South London um, can understand some of the things that happen to a young person like myself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's wonderful, and I think that's really really nice. And and I think it is that you know, like you say, that people are on parallel lines in their life, and it it feels like it's almost just default of where where you where you were born that you know that 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 offers that opportunity for one person and not not for another person. Um, one of the things that that um, that really shone out in the book was your sort of ability to communicate with people on a really on a really human level and um you know i i I was you know the 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 part where you're um providing first aid support to the young man who's been um attacked and and then you discover stabbed um what struck me was sort of your ability to communicate, but also this real sort of sense of calm. Um, do you feel like those sort of personal qualities, what difference they've made for you and how they've helped you? Um, I would say that I've learned how to sort of communicate from a very young age. I think partly due to um, everything my mom sort of taught me growing up but she always instilled with us that in order to grab opportunities, you needed to sort of have this confidence within you. Similar to that situation, I was, when it sort of first happened, I was completely horrified um, because I've come to the scene of a stabbing and I've come to realize that I'm the only person who actually knew how to do any sort of first aid. and that story turns into an, an amazing story afterwards. And I would encourage like anyone to sort of read it within the book. And, and it talks about my relationship with the victim afterwards. Um, but again, I think at that moment, this confidence sort of kicked in because I knew what was at stake. Um, so I think throughout my, my whole entire life, it's been really important to communicate to have really good interpersonal skills. And I would say that's helped me in terms of networking and meeting different people and working with the different businesses and organizations that I've worked with. That's great. Yeah, I I, 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 I mean, I get such a wonderful impression of your mum from the book. Um, I, really, I really liked that you gave her story um, early on in the book and and obviously yeah she's really um, I can tell she's had a big effect on on your on your life um, I'm conscious that um, we, we we are running out of time so it, what I would hope to do um, is is you know in the theme of of, of the book um, end on a positive note but also um, 
on another theme. What, what are the things that are giving you hope for the future now, despite the challenges that we've had over the past year? Um, I think there's been so many changes in the world around us. Um, I definitely have a lot of hope for the future. I feel during this time, even though it's been very difficult, um, I've seen so many young people um, adopt ideas and really try to bring things to life. I've seen a boom in young people that are getting involved in business and trying to like set up their own creative ideas. Um, there's this drive that has come out of nowhere, even in terms of myself. And um, it's been incredible to see for everyone. So I think as, as much as we can talk about the negatives of a time like this, we, we must also highlight the positives. Um, I think for me, seeing um, a lot of focus on things like diversity has been really important for me. Many of the companies that I've worked with in the past are now really trying to hone in on that and, and to focus on that. I still feel there's a long way to go. Um, we still need to tackle things like ra racial injustices and things within our society. Um, but glad to see that there's been a bit of progress. So a lot of hope for the future. We're opening up. Um, things are slowly returning back to whatever it was before. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't even know if I would call it normal, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, really, really happy. That's really lovely. And that's a really lovely um, note to end on. Um, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but Jeremiah, thank you so much to, for talking to me and sharing um, your thoughts and your experiences um, and discussing the book with me. Um, I, I really would encourage everybody to go out and buy Jeremiah's book. I really, really enjoyed it. I just... I just, yeah, I just thought it was wonderful. Um, so to those of you who are watching, um, please do go check out Jeremiah's book, Dreaming in a Nightmare. Um, details of how you can do that are in the sidebar chat. Um, and all that's left for me to say is thank you again to Jeremiah for joining me and talking so openly about his experiences. And thank you everybody for watching and joining in on the chat. So thank you um, and have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.